Peekaboo Audio on Instagram comments and says, What leads to the most happiness in life? When the show drops, I'll check it out. <laughs> you do know this is a beekeeping podcast, right? What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. To be fair, we asked for questions. You have a question, I'll give you an answer. What leads to the most happiness in life? Well, it's actually quite easy. Surround yourself with people that you enjoy and that you love being around and follow your passions and do what you love. Those are the things that actually bring you happiness. Jobs and careers a lot of times are just to pay bills. That does not necessarily bring happiness, but pursuing your passions, pursuing your dreams, those things will lead you to happiness. As a side note, we decided to move this episode up. It was originally going to be released around the 23rd, but we're going to go ahead and release it now because a lot of the questions seem to be a little bit more pertinent to the time of year. And it did occur to me after the fact that, um, yeah, for those of you up north, you don't have a lot of time left before winter starts. I'm sorry. <laughs> so now, on with the show. Nope. Let's try that again. <laughs> Ready or not, it is another listener question episode. And uh, there's a few of them in here. There's a there is a scientist that would like to have a word with you. A scientist? <laughs> a scientist. Where's he from? Australia. Well, it's because water goes the wrong damn direction down there. Uh, apparently not. <laughs> oh, he tuned. thinks it goes the right direction? Stay tuned. We shall see. Oh, okay. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Okay. <laughs> uh, Okay, so before we dive into these listener questions, we had a message sent to us that was very moving and very heartfelt and just kind of blew us all away. Um, Ken and I both were just astounded at at even potentially having this sort of an impact on anybody. So this this was very, very, very... Heartfelt. Yeah, it was very heartfelt. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Thank you so very much. It's uh, we're, uh, Paula in Poland, sent us a message, and she said, Goodness gracious, I accidentally found your podcast, and I instantly fell in love with your voices and personalities. <laughs> but the knowledge, my oh my, all the input and the years of experience is just marvelous. I started my beekeeping journey as I remembered my grandfather doing it many, many years ago. Sadly, he passed away. But now as I've started doing it, all of that has been theoretical up until this point. First comes the knowledge, and then you can actually take responsibility for those tiny animals. I just wanted to give you guys all the thumbs up and a huge thank you. Your podcasts have been my light during my depression, and now I have finally found the motivation to continue. All the best to you, and you guys keep it up. That, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sitting there, wow, that's all we do it for. I mean, yeah, we have, we have fun doing it. We do have fun doing we it. We have a blast doing this. That, that is kind of the, you know, it's it's to reach out there. It's to educate and entertain and, and you know, let you guys know that you're not alone, that 
as you run into different challenges and things out there. Um, you know, there's, we all take hits and losses here and there, and then, you know, we stand back up and we keep going and it's just to let everybody know that it happens to all of us and we're not alone and we can all experience and share this journey of beekeeping together. Um, and you know, I, I definitely, I love it when we get in the, the messages, you know, that, that talk about the fun things and, and ask the questions and tell us, you know, that they enjoy the show or they, they pick on a certain point and, and, you know, we all kind of have a laugh at it, but this one right here, this caught me off guard and this, this blew me away. So it really was, I am, I am very appreciative of your words, Paula. Thank you very much. That, that means a lot. And we are so glad that you've enjoyed the show and we're glad that, um, you know, however, directly or indirectly, that we were able to help you along the way. And, and we're, we, you know, our condolences for the passing of your grandfather. But um, thank you so much. That was just, that was amazing. It really was. It was, it was yeah, that was pretty good. That was really good, in fact. Thank you so very much for the kind words. And, uh, yeah, our condolences for your grandpa. I lost my dad a few years back, and uh, I understand. I did too, actually. And it's a, uh, it's a, uh, you know, I wish he was here. He he would love what I'm doing now with the bees. Yeah, um, that was kind of mine. The my father passed when I was just getting into it, and my first two colonies had not arrived just yet. Uh, they were supposed to get there in May, and he passed away in April. And so he he didn't get to see. He heard all of the excitement and all the, the other stuff that came along with it, but he didn't get to see the, he would have had a heart failure when I quit my job, first off. He would have <laughs> lost his damn mind. Um, and But he didn't get to see that. He didn't get to see how this has all evolved. So definitely, we understand. Oh, yeah. You know, that's one thing John's seeing now. I have a son, and my son's in his uh, early to mid-30s, and... I didn't know how he'd take to it because no. he does not like stinging bugs. Yeah, Max cracks me up because, like you said, originally he was like, yeah, okay, Dad, whatever with your hobby. But now he's out there. Well, man, I, I want to be there. Like, I've got yeah. this appointment. I want to be out there with you guys. <laughs> he's got to be with his in-laws today, and we're going to be out there working bees, and it's just killing him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Max is, Max is a good guy. Um, and he's done he's done a lot of the work and everything for you guys to go out there and, you know, be literally right in the middle of it. So mm-hmm. we posted the picture on Instagram of you guys out there looking for the queen eggs mm-hmm. and, and trying to find the queen and everybody is you know waiting on on bated breath trying to figure out is what it? happened um technically by the time this episode airs we will have already told you yay or nay yeah. on that because we're yeah. we're about a week to two weeks out on our recordings we're recording them and then they air a couple weeks out so we'll go through and we'll post on social media and let you guys all know um how that actually turned out also another very heartfelt moving thing that was that definitely caught me off guard and i did this so um to everybody who actually caught this on instagram live on instagram um part of that is john doesn't know how to use instagram so that was kind of entertaining <laughs> but i was a, i was initially attempting to post a story mm-hmm. about an event that happened on 911 mm-hmm. uh, with michaela and me and the bees lemonade and in uh, i accidentally went live so the first one was live, 
And we did have several of our listeners actually like Hammer and a few other people actually like immediately jumped on there and they were waving. And then when they they heard that I was talking about, they were like, oh, my God, like, well, this is so amazing. This is great. You know, but it was a little emotional and everything, too. So it wasn't our normal like, woohoo, like goofiness. Um, We can go live uh, on Instagram like Facebook. Why the hell ain't we doing that? I don't know, but it cracked me up. I was like, oh, God, that says alive. Um, (laughs) So when. I got done, I had to go back and then figure out how to convert that over into a story. But the the main thing there, for those of you that did not catch that and, and may not be on Instagram, which if you're not, you need to be because you need to follow us because we need the followers. Um, that whole thing was about Michaela with Me and the Bees Lemonade. And on 9-11, uh, they called me up. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do something, and mm-hmm. we were talking about different things, and, and they wanted to know, you know, they said, well, there was nearly 3,000 lives lost on 9-11, mm-hmm. and we want to do something to help kind of remember those people and and do something that can be, you know, help memorialize that and show that we care and everything. And what they came up with, they wanted to know how many bees were in a package. And it's roughly about 3,000 bees, but Mm -hmm. it's the wrong time of year to be looking at anything package related. Yeah, you don't get packages this time of year. Yeah. And and so they told me their concept was they want to save one bee for every life that was lost as just kind of this, you know, euphemism for for what we wish could have happened type Mm -hmm. of thing. And I was like, well, you know, it's not really the right time of year to do a package, but a colony contains, you know, a nuke contains this many bees and a colony contains this many bees. And what we ended up coming down to was we decided they are going to, well, they've already done it actually, but they, they donated in the funds to support the rescue of a colony that otherwise could have potentially been exterminated or killed. Mm -hmm. And that colony will be rescued and rehabilitated through Wicked Bee. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it's going to be donated to a member of either the armed forces or the like police and fire, anybody who has ever served that might have PTSD or any type of, of issue that it is a, you know, a stress and anxiety and a mental handicap and burden to mm-hmm. them. And it will be donated to them because there's been a lot of research that shows that working with bees actually can help people with mental handicaps. They can help calm people down and they can help people with PTSD. And so Michaela and them have donated the funds in so that we can go through and do this work and get this hive and then donate that back out to somebody who could really, really use that type of thing in their life to help them out. So that was also amazing and wonderful. So how's that? Two heartfelt things and some personal stories to start off your show. That'll work. Yeah. Woohoo. Now, so are you going to be out there? coaching these bees and you're going to be the master sergeant okay ladies get down there give me 50 50 right now i want it now 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 get it get it get it and then okay y'all get out there and catch some get some pollen and i want nectar i had this this makes me think of it i had a friend when i first started um doing some of the videos and stuff online and we showed a video of the bees marching when Mm -hmm. they all march into something yeah i saw that it's a phenomenal thing to see but it it took me forever to actually get the first video because you always stop and you just stare with your mouth open like wow that is so awesome and then i'm like oh crap i'm supposed to be recording this uh (laughs) but i finally i posted one online and this has been years ago and one of my friends was like how did you get all the bees to do that and I sat there for a minute, and I said, I just snapped my fingers and pointed and said, go. And he sat there, and he goes, with you, I could actually believe that. <laughs> well, you so. know, when when they came to the high, to the, the trailer hive, which we're going to check today, they 
When you turned, you got over there. They had swarmed up. There was a big beard hanging off the edge of the trailer. You got up there, turned the hive right. They just started marching right in, just got side by side and went right in. Just like, you know, I never saw, I'm sitting there, damn, look at that. And you said that's what they do. Wow. That is, that's what they do. And that's what John did. He snapped his fingers, get in. And now I went in. Let's just go. <laughs> Point and go. Um, okay, so let's let's dive into these listener questions okay. here. Um, these are all over the place, and uh, I apologize. I did not get them all typed up onto show notes and put into appropriate orders. So Shame we are literally going to be doing these from our phones, and they're in absolutely no order whatsoever. Um, so the first one is going to be to Mark. So hello, Mark. Thank you for reaching out to us. And Mark, technically Mark's already got his questions answered. I did respond back to him, but I wanted to uh, put this out there just for other people in case they um, have the same issue. So Mark says, hi, I've got a question. I currently have 18 bars of drawn comb in my top bar hive. The Take it three. <laughs> the, the last no, five. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the last three being bars that are made up from rescue bars. I have not opened the box in a while since I repaired those three bars. Upon going into the hive, I immediately noticed that there were no new bars of drawn comb beyond the ones that had been repaired, although the bees did accept the three. I was only able to go back into the bars up to the 15th bar, as those previous bars contained cross comb, and I did not want to traumatize the colony. That said, I have absolutely no idea what is going on in the first 15 bars, other than the fact that there is a lot of activity at the opening, including import of what appears to be a fairly good flow of pollen. I did stop at the 15th bar, and in reassembling the hive, instead of placing the three rescue bars immediately next to one another, I inserted an empty bar next to the 15th, and then again between each of the rescue bars. I apologize if my description is wordy or confusing, but I wanted to do the best and paint the right picture of what I'm dealing with. I'm afraid my poor bees have survived despite me. I'd like to do everything that I can to help them through the winter so we can start fresh in the spring, spring without any cross-combing. Thank you in advance. All right, so here is the answer that I had given out to him. Um, number one, it is late in the year. Bees only draw out wax in the spring. It mm -hmm. is They can do it. They have the ability to do it in the mm -hmm. fall, but they know that the season is actually getting shorter. The sun is setting sooner. The days are shorter, and they have to be taking all of their resources and saving that as food stores for winter. If they try to make comb, they're expending a huge amount of their resources to make that new comb, so rarely will they do that. So what you're gonna what you're gonna end up having to do is go back into that colony, and every one of those empty bars that you put in there for spacers, take them back out. You want all of the comb coming into winter to be flush against itself. You want them all to be right there. You don't want any gaps or spaces. But no cross comb. Well, don't worry about that yet. Okay. Um, you want everything to be all in line. You don't want any gaps or spaces because as the bees eat through their food stores, if mm -hmm. they come to a gap. That could be a bridge that they cannot cross because it's too cold and they can't make it to the next comb. And they literally could starve out and die Even when there's food the right next door. Wow. Wow. So take those back out of there. Don't worry about that for right now. Now, the other thing is don't worry about the cross combing. 
it is too late in the year. Again, they're not going to build any new wax. They're not going to do any expanding. So if you go in there and you cut all that cross combing out, they're losing whatever resources they currently have stored in there, and that's going to be gone. They built the cross combing. They can you know maneuver it. They can make it work. It'll be okay. So as hard as it may be and as bizarre as it may sound, the best thing to do right now is to leave them alone. You can feed them, you can do the supplemental feeding to make sure that they get food stores in there. Watch those last combs, and if they start putting food stores in those last combs and capping it up, you know you're doing a good job. Um, but just make sure that they've got plenty of food. That's going to be the main thing. They need plenty of capped food stores going into winter. So right now, let them be. Just feed them, let them continue bringing stuff in. Don't worry about trying to go in there and do any type of reconstructive surgery to the hive. In the spring, early, early spring, like say March, April, um, depending on when your spring really starts in your area, then you can go back into the hive and you can start addressing the cross comb. And what you're going to do is you're going to take all that out. You're literally just going to cut it all out of there. It's going to probably come out in one massive chunk that has, you know, five to ten bars attached to it and flip it over, cut it out. Use the same rescue bar method that you did on the other three. Anything that is a decent size and is straight, go ahead and cut it and put it onto the rescue bar. If you need to cut and shape the comb so that it matches, you know, how you want to have it turned, you can do that. And then you can put all that stuff back in there. And since how it is spring and they're in an expansion mode, the bees will happily go through and they will repair and correct and they will get everything filled out and you will be good to go. But for right now, for the winter, the best thing you can do for them is just go through and make sure they've got plenty of food. Is that Let It Be, B-E-E, -E, or Let It Be, B-E, -E? sort of like the Beatles song? <laughs> I don't know why. That hit me when you said so it. For Let some it reason, the, uh, I, I now have this image in my head of a bunch of hive beetles standing side by side, swaying back and forth, singing, <laughs> Let It Be, Let It Be, Let It Be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yet another cartoon that we need to have made. Yep. Let It Be. Okay, so back over to our next question. All right. Lacey. Lacey, Lacey, Morning, Lacey. Lacey. Lacey is Lacey's going to inundate this episode with questions. So we're going to jump back and forth. And okay. We're just going to get them kind of whatever they get came in, whatever order yeah. they came in. Yeah. So Lacey says, hey, guys, more questions for your next episode. And and then this, this is ends up being a part one, two, and three. Okay. <laughs> so part one. Started with a package mm -hmm. in a top bar hive March 28th. My mm -hmm. apiary is just south of Kansas City, Missouri. They've built 28 full bars. Good gosh. There was a lot of hot July. Oh, there was a hot July accident, which resulted in two full bars of nectar falling off of the bars. Laying at the bottom of the hive, lots of dead bees, huge sticky mess everywhere. I wasn't able to save any of that comb. I did a little bit for my I did save a little bit for myself to practice my harvesting methods, but the rest I ended up leaving out in the woods on a plate for them to find. Who knows who actually found it? My real concern or question though is they do not have a single bar of capped honey as of yet. There are two bars that are 50% capped and nine bars that have about two to three inches of capped honey at the top, but the rest of the comb has maybe an inch of capped honey at the top and is mostly still being used for laying eggs and filled with brood. Will they cap enough honey before winter? Do, do, do. I mean, that's kind of the question, right? Um, why is she still filling up everything with eggs? Should I start to feed them two to one so that they can store for themselves? The apiary is next to a wooded area, many, many trees and greenery, but we are flower poor. I plan to plant a large area of maybe red clover or something in the next year in a vacant grassy area 
Um, I'm still being a helicopter beekeeper and worrying about if they can find enough nectar. Okay, so that was one question. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so technically there is absolutely nothing wrong with them still laying eggs and brood, and you want them to do that mm-hmm. because what do we want, Ken? Winter bees. That's right. We want fat winter bees, and mm-hmm. this is when they start raising them. So during the dearth, they actually cut down a little bit, and they stop raising in some areas. And then as you get closer to that fall flow, they will ramp back up, and they're going to start raising those winter bees. So if they're in full brood production mode, and they're laying lots of brood, lots of larvae in there, they're going to be consuming resources. So it's understandable to know that you know, they're, you're not seeing an influx of it. But the fact that they have capped honey on most of their bars, and you've got a few bars that are mostly capped, that does show you they do have some food stores in Mm -hmm. there. Now, what's going to happen is as the fall flow happens, they're going to be bringing in more and more and more, and they will start backfilling that just like they did in the spring and summer. They're going to backfill that in. There'll be less and less larva being laid, less brood taking up cells, and they're going to fill all that with food stores. So your goal is when you're doing your inspections, you want to go through and you want to monitor and you want to make sure that you're seeing that open liquid coming in. Now, if you truly are in kind of a, a, a dead zone for plants and flowers for the fall, then you can start doing the two to one. But don't do it just yet. We're still pretty early. We're just starting September. I would wait until at least, say, the... Well, you guys can start getting snow in October some years. Maybe. So. For you, I would say wait at least until the beginning of October, which by the time this airs, maybe then, now. (laughs) So um, around the beginning of October, you're going to want to go through, and that's when you can switch over to the two-to-one, which is two parts sugar, one part water. Make sure you actually do that so all the sugar is completely dissolved. That means you're going to really want to boil the water and get it boiling and then put it over into a container to dump the sugar into it. You need super hot water to actually dissolve the double amount of sugar. Um, but yeah, in October, go through and you can start doing the two to one. Your goal is to try to have a 50-50 ratio. And that's of bars of bees to bars of capped food sort, not overall bars. So if you've got 20 bars, you don't need 10 and 10. But if you go through and you look in those 20 bars and you've got five bars that are solid covered in bees and they're still doing brood, then you need at least five bars of solid capped food stores for them to make it through the winter. So that's kind of what you're looking at. You still have got time. Everything is good. Um, but yeah, go ahead. At the, by the time you listen to this, it's probably a good time to go ahead and, and switch that over. All right. So next question from Lacey. Background info. My first top bar hive, let's just say we goofed a little bit on making the bars. So it's more like a top bar hive body with Langstroth bars, meaning that all of our bars were way too narrow. <laughs> So we ended up adding tabs onto the ends, which resulted in them being more like a horizontal Langstroth. Do you get what she's saying? Long lane. Sort of, but they're still a bar. They're not a frame. Yeah. Um, So she had a bar, and, you know, we recommend those bars are exactly one and three-eighths inches Mm -hmm. whenever you're building the top bar. So hers Mm -hmm. probably were, you know, like one or shy of that. So they've put little tabs just like your frames just have like on the edges wider. that butt up against it to give yeah. enough space that when the bees draw out those combs, oh, they can, yeah. Yeah, they can okay. still yeah. have the comb as wide as they need to without mm-hmm. hopefully causing cross-combing. Mm-hmm. But that's caused a gap between every one of those bars that normally the bars would be solid against each other. Mm-hmm. Now she's got a gap. Okay, so she says, I covered the lid with some mesh so that they can come up under the bars and cover them, but not get up into the roof area. But then we made a 12-bar nuke, or a swarm trap, and we did the correct size bars. 
So I put four of these bars sporadically throughout my existing hives so that if, uh, if and when I needed to make a split or make a nuke, I could use these and pull them out and put them into the nuke box. So in regards to that, there, there is not really a specific question in that specific section. So I'm going to go through and address kind of what's going on there. Now, since how you have a gap between your bars, you're going to be letting heat escape. And having the mesh over the top of it so that they can come up and cover the bar is it's fine, but it's kind of irrelevant when winter comes. So what you're going to want to do is do some research online and look into they have like the blankets and the pads and things like that that you can actually set in the top sections usually above like the inner cover, things like that on your Langstroths. There are some out there that they can put on top of like a long lang or a top bar. And we talked about that briefly here a couple episodes back whenever we had the question in regards to the Valkyrie Hive. Um, and they have like a, a wool kind of blanket that you can put in there. So do a little bit of research on something like that. And what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to take your lid off and you're going to, going to want to put this blanket or this cover that's going to be thick and insulating over the top of the bars that have the openings. And you could do it over the top of all of them, but you want to make sure that your lid can still fit down over the top of it after you do that. And that's going to help seal in the heat so that it can kind of compensate for those gaps between the bars. That would be my recommendation on that one right there. The rest of it, though, there, that should not be a problem. And yes, you can use your regular size bars. You can take those out and use those to make splits, to make a nuke, to have a bait comb for a swarm. And then that leads into her last part here for the first email. Um, her first swarm, September 3rd, after a weekend of storms, um, possibly maybe their home was damaged, like what we had talked about at your place out there. Yeah. Uh, her neighbor had a swarm land on a tree next to her front door. She was very uneasy and very nervous about it. So I strapped a 12-bar top bar nuke hive as close as I could get to it. Now, this is where I messed up. Instead of just taking one of those nuke bars and using it as bait, I used all four. <laughs> in the excitement of the situation, I thought, hey, put in as much furniture as possible, and they might really like it, and they did. At least 95% of them did. They moved in the same day, all except a tiny little ball-sized clump that was still very high up and in the that's tree. the queen. Maybe. I don't know. The next day, I opened the box. I didn't see the queen, and I wanted to leave the box a couple of more days to make sure that the queen came down. Neighborhood lady, though, wanted the bees gone. So I went ahead and took them home after two days, hoping that the queen was in there. I relocated them to my aviary on September 5th. We left them alone for a few days, arranged to purchase a queen because I'm pretty sure that she was not in there. And what do I find? At least 14 emergency queen cells. Going to let them do their thing. Problem is, it's late in the season. I'm thinking they really aren't going to make it. Are there going to be enough drones in the area for her to mate with? Are there two? Or there are two large colonies in my apiary. One is mine. One is my sister-in-law's, and a handful of colonies down the road. Also, even a bigger concern: should I have waited to give them all four of those nuke bars? What? Uh, or sorry, should I have waited to give them all four of those nuke bars? That way, if they needed to raise a queen, they might have had. Uh, day one eggs, maybe. I worry that those emergency queen cells are on eggs that are more than three days old. What should I do? Nothing, because they're not going to make it through the winter anyway, or somehow put those bees in with mine before the queen emerges. So here's my timeline. September 3rd, the swarm moved in. September 5th, I relocated it. September 8th, there were 14 plus queen cells. Thank you for reading my book. <laughs> Your super fan <laughs> from episode one, Lacey. Okay, 
this is kind of an, an interesting scenario on this one, and it, it could take a lot of hand-holding, but what has happened is there already were eggs and larvae in your four bars that you took out of that topper hive yeah. to use to help draw the bees in. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely correct. They probably did not get their queen. The queen, like you said, Ken, was probably they up in that smaller ball. ball. Mm-hmm. And so the bees moved in, and they immediately knowing they didn't have a queen, started making emergency queen cells. That's not a bad thing. Now, the bees are smart. They are intelligent, and they know what they're doing. So when they went in there and they started making those 14 queen cells, they picked larvae that would have been at the right age. So at this point in listening to this, actually, if it was already on September 8th, um, by the time you hear this, you're going to be out of luck. <laughs> so, yeah. so I will respond to your email today so that you can actually get a response a little bit ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And it may be a little bit too late. But what, what I would say to do in a situation, if this ever arises for anybody again, um, you need to go in and any of the queen cells that are already capped, but you've got other ones that are still open, remove those. Take the capped ones out of there because those would have been larvae that may have been just on the cusp of being a little bit too old. But the ones that they're just starting, those would be larvae that are exactly the right age. So the first thing that you can do is you can remove any of the ones that are already capped, so long as there are other ones that are being developed that are not quite capped yet. The second thing is going to be, if you go into the colony and they're all already capped, that's okay. Pick two or three of the largest queen cells, the biggest ones in there, and leave those and take everything else out. So you, you really only need like, you know, that one, two or three. I always leave two at the minimum just because if something happens, you know, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. So go through and remove everything but three of them or two of them. And then they will come out and they will hatch and they will go through and do their thing and they'll mate. Now, the lucky thing is in the fall, as you've noticed, as you've even said with yours, they're still raising lots of brood. They will eventually get to the point, hopefully in your area, where they will also start raising drones again for the fall. And that means you can raise queens in the fall and they can still have somebody to mate with and that's perfectly fine. So you can do that and you can allow them to go out and mate and come back and start laying and you're good to go. Now, if you buy a purchase queen that is already mated, that gives you a jump start. Now you're not having to wait that entire duration where no bees are being raised and born and everything, and you could just put her in immediately. But you've got to be able to identify your new queen and get her out of there and make sure there's no virgin queens in there before you introduce that new queen. Now, the last part of that, can they survive? Will they survive? That's debatable. Um, You need that 50 to 50 ratio. So if they've only got four comb in there, you need two combs, solid bees and two combs of solid food. And yes, they could potentially make it through the winter, but you need a lot of bees. They need to be able to have a lot of young winter bees that can survive all the way through the winter and actually generate enough heat and, and raise the temperature of that to keep everybody warm, plus have the food to go through and be able to eat to make it through the winter. So It could be a challenge. It could be an experiment for you. If you want to do it, go ahead and give it a try. Um, Worst case scenario, if it comes right down to it and you don't think that they're going to make it, combine it back with the top bar. Pick whichever queen you want to keep and then combine it back in there. Now, if you do allow them to raise their own queen, I would almost say if you do decide to go ahead and combine it back with the top bar, get rid of the newest queen because, you again, it is late in the year. It's questionable about how well she could have been mated. So go ahead and keep the original queen um, that is in your big top bar colony and get rid of the newer one and combine those back in there. But you can do it. I have raised 
Granted, my weather is completely different down here than it is up in Kansas City. Trust oh, yeah. me. I used to live in Kansas City. Um, there's a reason I keep moving further south. So it's warmer. <laughs> it's warmer, and I don't like snow. I don't <laughs> mind the snow. It needs to be pretty. Fall look good. You play oh, yeah. in it a day, and the next day it needs to hit sixty, and that crap needs to go away. Yeah. So that's my version of snow. Um, but yeah, you, you can go through and you can do this. I have done where I had a queen and I felt really bad and I didn't want to get rid of her because she was my favorite queen, but she was already four years old and I kept moving her and making new nukes with her and everything like that. And finally I was like, okay, well, you know, the time's up and then I felt bad and I left her in a cage for a little while and then I was like, okay, so I built this, it's a demonstration hive that's not meant to ever have bees in it. It's tiny version of a top bar hive, tiny, tiny, tiny. And I put her in there with literally two handfuls of bees and two little tiny chunks of comb that I cut out and a jar of honey and a sugar roll and a pollen roll. And I put it all into this little tiny box and they lived. Um, I had to literally go out there and check them quite often though. And you know, they like, I had to fight the hive beetles for them because the hive beetles were up in there trying to eat that pollen roll. And so I would open it up and I would have to squish beetle larvae and squish beetles. And we just kept going and kept going and they hung in there barely. And then, you know, come spring, man, it just exploded and she filled that tiny little box up. They made solid comb everywhere and it was great. So it is possible, but it takes a lot of nurturing and a lot of hand-holding to go through and do that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's Ken's response. Yeah. Yeah. What he said. Yeah. What he said. Okay. Now then, our next listener question. Our next question is going to come from John in the suburbs of Long Island, New York. New York. <laughs> Hi, John. I don't, I don't know. I don't that's, know. That's, that's, is that New York Texas I accent? I don't know what that was, Ken. Oh, yeah. That was painful. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that was. <laughs> they got better sandwiches than we do. Well, yeah. Um, maybe even pizza. I don't know. It depends. Do you like New York style pizza? Don't know if I ever had it. I'm sure you have. That deep dish? No, that's Chicago. Chicago's a deep dish. And then there's there's even a Detroit style pizza. Um, which is a, they put the sauce on. I top hate Hunt and, Brothers. <laughs> Hunt Brothers Pizza. <laughs> okay, <Ed> Bluffton. <laughs> so John in Long Island, New York. John says I have hives in the suburbs of Long Island, but my brother has a vacation house in the country up in Central New York. Fill it full of bees. It seems like a great place for bees. See, Ken's already there. Fill it full of bees. <laughs> um, there's tons of spring flow, summer flowers with goldenrod, and tons of knotweed in September. I wanted to split one of my hives next spring and bring it up there, but I would have to leave them there on their own since it's too far away to carry out bi-weekly inspections as requ- or, uh, you know as you should. So could Langstroth. I split? Yeah, it, it is a Langstroth. Okay. Could I split my hive, build them up in a single deep, treat it for mites, and then bring them up there? Once there, could I give them two or three supers to expand into in case I can't get back up there for over a month or so? I suggested this on one of the forums, and I got chewed to threads. Folks were saying I'd be mite-bombing the area. How is that different than if I was actually just living there and was a treatment-free beekeeper? Your thoughts? Will it work? What are my risks? Thanks, John. Okay. Well, what do you think, Ken? I think John ought to find a good beekeeper around there and get be good friends with him, sort of like I did with John Swan. <laughs> I'm not around you, though. That's <laughs> the problem. You're 100 miles from me. But... Uh, uh, get friends with him and see if he would help just when he's in that area, if he'll circle by there and just look in there. 
That's not a bad idea. Um, you would have to really, Get really know the individual and be comfortable with them being out on your brother's property without anybody else being there and any yeah. supervision, for sure. Yeah. So you, you don't want to just, you know, willy-nilly pick anybody, for sure. But that that is actually not a bad solution. Have somebody that can maybe check in on them every two to three weeks, just in case, make sure everything's good. If a storm came through, it didn't blow over, you know, things like that. So, um, okay, number one, I'm going to address this in reverse order. Online forums suck because people suck. That's that's honestly the truth of it. I they just want a bad mouth. I know. I hate getting on Facebook. I, I accidentally, like, I get on through pages so I can manage all of the different pages and stuff we have. Rarely do I ever actually log into Facebook itself. And once in a blue moon for the Beekeepers Association, somebody will request to join the association or join our chat group. Mm-hmm. And I'll have to actually log in to accept that request and validate it. And when I do, then I see this whole flood. And I, I mean, there's there's the forum on there for our local association. There's the forums on there for the five other associations in the five counties around us. There's the state forum. And even though I'm a director for the state, I get in there and I can read about two or three of them until I'm, I'm just already irritated. And what irritates me more than anything is not the people and their questions. It's all of the a-holes that are responding to them. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and, I, and I know that's not an appropriate thing, but it's the truth, honestly. It, it's not a bitter, jaded viewpoint of it. If you've been on those forums for any number of time at all, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's always somebody on there that's going to tell you, oh, you can't do that. And there's always somebody on there that's going to say, oh, it's the queen and you need to do this or, oh, they're going to die or, gee, I sure hope you did this. And it's just like, oh, my God, people like we're out here to try and, and share an experience and to help one another. Beekeeping is beekeeping is beekeeping. It's not a proprietary science. Like, there's no reason to be guarded and mean and bitter and jaded. Help each other. That's the whole point. That's why we started the podcast, is to help everybody and be able to share experiences and stories and see how Ken does things and be able to relate and be able to be like, wow, you know, that, like, I never thought of that. Or, hey, I had that problem too. Now I don't feel so bad. Like... Oi, sorry, I'll get off my uh, online forum soapbox and get back to John's question here. Um, (laughs) It drives me crazy. Um, So, John, number one, ignore the forums and the people on there, and I apologize for your experience there. Um, It's unfortunate we should all be nicer to one another. Second thing, yes, you can take your bees up to the central part of New York. Absolutely. Take them up there. Put them out there on your brother's land. Just put one colony out there or two maximum, but, but no more than that. Um, The only reason I would say two is because then when you get up there, if you do need to do something or you need to share resources between colonies, there's another one right there. Because it's not going to be as easy as your home apiary where, oh, I need to take a frame of brood or a frame of food and give it to this other colony. It's going to be just one and only lonely up there by itself. So think about it. You don't have to. If you don't put two up there, that is fine. That would be just a suggestion. Are those city bees going to do all right in the country? (laughs) I mean, I, I don't want to live in the city. It's the suburbs of Long Island. I mean, they'll be fine. They're the Yankee bees. Do they go? Do they hum in a different tone than our our bees do? I'll quit. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll so, quit. all right. So, take your bees up there. Um, I think you have some great thoughts, great ideas. You've already kind of been putting into this, so that's great. Go through. 
And yes, raise them up, get them nice and strong. Do your mite treatments super, super early in the spring before there's too many brood in there. That'll help take care of a lot of that problem. And then once you get that deep, nice and strong, go ahead and move it up there. And if you want to, take them a couple of boxes and, and put on there. That's fine as well. Um, I don't know if you're doing all the same size boxes or if you're doing like one deep and then mediums, but you know, you could go ahead and do that. If you take two deeps, one drawn out and one empty, that would buy you maybe a month. And then if you could get up there that next month and take yourself another medium or a couple of mediums, then that would maybe get you the rest of the way through the, the spring flow and the first part of the summer. So go ahead and do that if you can. Get them up there and just, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like anything. It's an experiment. See what happens. Um, as far as the mite bombing, you're absolutely correct. Like, it doesn't matter if you are in that region keeping bees yourself or if it is a feral colony in a tree, or if it's a beekeeper down the road that never watches his bees. The only time you're ever going to truly mite bomb an area is, one, if your colony is overran with mites, and two, the colony crashes because of the mites. And when the colony crashes, then all the neighboring hives will come and they will rob out the resources, and while they're doing that, the mites will happily jump on the bees and hitch a ride to the neighboring colony. Yeah! Yeah! That's what a mite bomb is. It's when a colony crashes and the mites then hitch rides to all the surrounding colonies, and the mite populations in those colonies then skyrocket artificially because new mites have just moved in out mm -hmm. of nowhere. But... If your hive stays alive and stays healthy, then no, you're not mite bombing anybody because the mite bomb only happens when the colony dies. And you've already said, I want to treat my colony before I take it up there. So you're already being responsible. You're trying to do the right thing. I say go for it. Put them out there. See what happens. Um, you can give them the extra space. If you're not going to be able to be there, you know, except for maybe once every month, then yes, they're going to need that extra space, mainly so they don't swarm off. But go for it. Give it a shot. i got another idea. Also, uh, you have a reason to go on vacation. You can tell your brother, hey, bro, hey, bro, I'm going to use the house, your house, because i got to go check the bees, bro. There you go. Another, another. That's the reason. Sounds great to me. <laughs> it's a reason. It's an excuse to get away yeah. once every three or four weeks. Hey, gotta get take a road trip this weekend and and go to the central part and check my bees. I'll That's be back. <laughs> Maybe get about twenty hives up there so you. Yeah, go have a lot more. <laughs> spend, spend more time. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's fine. Um, I would definitely try to check them at least once a month because even at once a month, that's still far enough out that if something does go wrong, it may be irreversible by the time you get there. It's the only downside. If you lost your queen for some reason or anything like that, if you lose her right after your last inspection, by the time you get back, you're going to have laying workers. So that would be the main concern. So if you can at least get there once a month, I think you would be good to go on that front. All right, so now we come to Lacey's second email. Mm -hmm. She's monopolizing our question time here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's okay. It's all right, though, because everybody learns from the questions. Oh, yeah. So in email number two, Lacey says, what format do you keep Hive Info on? Do you use an app, a paper chart? What do you use to record each visit? Well, when I first started, I actually did paper charts. Um, but my brain is a little bizarre, and I remember things when it comes to to certain aspects of stuff. I remember them really well. I can do really well about setting in a meeting and not necessarily taking notes and Wait, still I be am. able to repeat yep. verbatim, you know, what was said and what we do in there. So yep. when I go out, I will actually make 
if I need something, I will make a mark or an indicator on the hive itself, on the lid or on the inner cover. You can use a pencil, you can use a marker, you can use chalk, you know, if you want it to be able to wipe off, things like that. But I'll go through and I might indicate, put a little mark on this one and know, okay, um, you know, this one was one that needs to be requeened or this one was one that had this issue going on and I'll just kind of indicate it that way. The way the next time I open up the lid or the inner cover and I see that, then I'm like, oh, yep, that's right. I need to go in and do this. But for the most part, I can pretty much point out every hive that I have an issue with or that I want to do something to. And I will remember, you know, all right, this one over here was this. Um, and they're also I've got so many different shapes and styles and varieties and colors that also helps because I'm like, oh, yeah, that big purple one over there. That one's a mean SOB. <laughs> now, on that note, John says, here we go. OK, <laughs> should I start making my bottom boards different colors yes yeah um mainly if you're gonna have them the the one thing that you don't want to do is have them all in a perfect straight line mm -hmm. all being the same color with the entrances all facing the same direction because then when the forgers go out and they're coming back mm -hmm. about the third or fourth time they've done that they're tired it's heavy mm -hmm. loads and they're like yeah this one over here on the end it's good enough and you'll start getting what's called drift, and they will go to those outer colonies. So if you can set your colonies up to where all the entrances are preferably facing, actually in the one photo you had two of your hives kind yeah, of facing inward yeah. at an angle. That's the new ones. I'm going to turn those to where they're facing outward at an angle. Because inward is still, they're coming into that center area. Yeah. At an outward angle, they're not. They're, they're then going completely in separate directions. Okay. Um, but yeah, you want to look at doing... You can have some that are white. You can do all solid colors. That'll mm -hmm. help because bees can see the colors and that'll help them. You can also do different patterns or designs or you can paint stencils on there. You can paint waves and stripes. And so what you'd want to do is this box is solid white. The next one might be blue and pink striped. And then the next one might be solid yellow. And then the next one might have a different pattern. So mix it all up. And they'll be able to tell the difference in there when they're coming and going into the so, house. So what I'm, what you're saying is on the brood box, right in front of the entrance, I have to put stencil at different colors, Ken, oh, Milam's award-winning honey, to subliminally message those bees to know that we're making award-winning honey. Did you know that you switched into radio voice? <laughs> that was Ken's advertising voice. That's what he sounds like when he does ads on the radio. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know what to tell you about that, Ken. I'm just going to move on to Lacey's question number two, which is like question number 20. Um, what do you do with your beeswax when you harvest it from a top bar hive? Well, for me specifically... I have too many projects, too many jobs, too many hats, too many other things going on. So when I take the wax out, I go through and I melt it down at least the first stage. I kind of do like a double boiler method, or you can even do a single boiler method. Um, I will put it, I've got these giant pots that are like the stoneware, mm -hmm. which basically for us is like what we grew up with camping. Mm -hmm. It's a metal pot that can be used to, I think mine are actually made for um, tamales. Mm -hmm. But I take, I've got two of them that are identical. And I'll put all the comb that I do, the crush and strain and comb from removals and stuff that, I, that we know is actually in decent shape. And we'll crush it all down and we put it into this pot. I fill the bottom of the pot with about two inches of water. And then I turn it on the absolute lowest setting the stove will go. And I let it set there until it's all completely liquefied. Then I take the other pot and I set it down and I will put triple layers of cheesecloth over it. And I'll rubber band that to the lip of the pot so that it kind of creates a net mesh yeah. netting there. And then once that other is all completely liquid, I take it and I pour it very slowly all the way through the cheesecloth. 
The cheesecloth catches all of the big particulates, the mm -hmm. solid mass, the cocoons and chrysalises, mm -hmm. the gunk, and everything we call the basically the junk. Yeah, yeah. Um, slum gum is what yeah. it's actually called. Okay. All of that crap that gets caught in there, and yeah. a lot of times it's black and it's nasty, um, yeah. and it catches all of that. The water and the wax then go down into the bottom. The wax floats up to the top of the water. All of the rest of the sediment that went through the, the kind of falls to the bottom mm -hmm. of it, and then it solidifies. We then pop that out of there, rinse it off, and that's the first stage. You can repeat that process another time or two and strain it and filter it a couple more times to get it cleaner, and that'll give you a much nicer-looking wax. But as you get that done... You can then turn around after that second or third straining and use it to do other stuff. People will also use solar melters. It's a slower process. You have it set outside and it slowly melts everything down. The junk and the nasty crap stays up at the top. The wax forms this beautiful little bright yellow trail, eventually runs down and drips into a pan. A lot of times that pan will have a water in it. So when the wax hits it, it kind of solidifies and sets on top. Any other debris goes to the bottom. Once you've got that nicer filtration of your wax, you can use it to make candles, lip balms, salves, lotions, you name it. I usually just stockpile it and then people buy it from me because those people want to make other things. Candles and stuff. And I don't have the time to. So I focus my stuff on bees, honey, and that's about it. The wax, I don't do a lot of wax products myself, but I will sell the wax. We've got people that um, own barbershops and they actually use it to make beard bombs. Okay. And so we have barbers that buy it. There's a lot of cosmetic to people that buy it. Mustache. Yeah, wax. so you can have like a handlebar mustache yeah. and things. So, but that's uh, that's what I do with my. Let wax. me throw something in here. I'm gonna save some marriages. Oh lord, guys, do not use your wife's pots and pans to melt wax in. No, buy something. <laughs> Something, Something you cheap, away. you can go to like a, a salvage or go to like a thrift store and mm -hmm. buy yourself something in there that nobody's going to care if you get it tore up. Because my one pot that I pour the wax into, that sucker's got, I mean, it's it's nasty. I don't think I could ever get it clean. You can't. No, no you cannot get wax off of a pan. Let me, now, you will well, you put can. it in a I big do. pan yeah. and boil the hell out of boil it. Boil it with, you, with uh, soap and water. the pan that you boiled it in, it's got wax on it as soon as it cools off. Yeah, so what there is there are ways to clean it and it is a pain in the butt. That's a whole nother story. Yeah, but yeah, you can you can use boiling soapy water mm -hmm. and clean like metal strainers and clean things like that, and then you gotta dump that out, and then you need to put the pan back on the stove and you need to heat it back up till it kind of starts smoking, and then you need to take a paper towel and wipe out all the wax residue, and then you need to turn around with hot soapy water and scrub the pan again. Just get separate pans. Yeah. <laughs> what he said. All right, next question. If I start with one strong hive and keep splitting it and letting them raise their own queens, daughter of the original queens, will those new virgin queens eventually start mating with the drones from the other hives, which are then technically their own brothers? Um, is this a potential problem? Or will they seek out other drones from outside of their own apiary? All right, so here's the deal. Don't hear guitar music and, and you know, when they go out there, well, shut up now. <laughs> I believe the correct song you're looking for is... You got it. Yeah, yeah, it's battling banjos. <laughs> okay, so in your apiary, bees, again, are, are lovely, lovely little creatures, and they are very intelligent and very smart, and they kind of know what they're doing. So when the drones from your little spot leave and they go to find the drone congregation areas they're going one direction hypothetically we're going to say that is west and they're going like a mile to two miles west mm. and they form this drone congregation area in a spot that is conducive hey, bro it's called a bar <laughs> it's okay. a bar um <laughs> looking to pick up chicks anyhow so they go out there to that area they form their drone congregation area 
when a colony produces virgin queens and those virgin queens from the same apiary go off to mate, they actually go in the opposite direction and they go further out. They may go two to three miles out to the east. And again, wow. hypothetically. Yeah. So really, they should not be running into drones from their own colonies. Okay. However, if you've got a little apiary and you're continue doing this genetic thing where you're letting them raise their own queens consistently, mm -hmm. you will still run into the same sort of problem because the drones from that area that your bees are mating with mm -hmm. are going to be coming from the same colonies and the same genetics of other colonies. So it's not literally inbreeding, but at the same time, you start diluting the genetics down because that same colony sends swarms every year, that same colony sends drones every year, your queens from your colonies mate with those colonies every year. So you can get into a, an, an area where you've started narrow, narrowing the genetic versus, man. You might be turning them into some mean damn bees. Not if they don't live around here. Oh, no, no. not around here. No, because feral bees, if they don't have the Africanized genetics, that's not going to necessarily make them mean. It's just going to, it's going to narrow your genetic diversity down to where. They play banjos. They don't have enough of the genetic yes. diversity to have yes. enough resources to do yes. what they need to do yes. so you can run into that problem so okay. i would say absolutely if you can raise your own queens do so but it is also beneficial for both you and feral colonies around in the area if every now and then you bring in a different genetic stock from somewhere else because those bees have been in a different environment and they're going to have different traits and characteristics that will keep your genetic diversity robust and going strong so interject that diversity when you can but don't bring in scrats. <laughs> scrats are meaner than hell. So Ken has been told. Yes. He has not experienced it. I this. have not experienced it. But the guy that told me he's got a bunch of them, so, or had a bunch of them. All right. So this question, the last one here for, for this email, is any research that has been done on the benefits of using herbs such as dried thyme in a smoker? <laughs> oh, no, but that one. <laughs> I ain't going there. <laughs> <laughs> so you can always tell when somebody likes to smoke certain herbs whenever they are around a bee bee colony and a smoker for the first time and they ask you man can you put can you put pot in there can you put marijuana in there i wonder what that would be like and i'm like so you're basically going to be sitting there smoking yourself in the face um I am sure that there is there has been some what we will call um, like urban scientists, you know, people that are not necessarily scientists, but they're just your urban backyard beekeepers that have experimented with different things. There is a lot of benefit from certain herbs to be used to make teas and then use that to make your sugar feed. And so there is probably some sort of benefits only to a calming effect on the bees. But honestly, the only thing the smoke is doing is it's covering up the pheromone. It's making the bees kind of gorge themselves on honey and nectar so they're not paying attention to you. It really doesn't necessarily calm them down. It stops up the receptors on the antennae and that, that makes them where they can't really receive the pheromone, the alarm pheromone and the danger warnings and things. So um, I do, I did read somewhere and I don't remember where it was though, where somebody did a thing to see which type of smoke seemed to work better, which seemed to mask the pheromones better and cause the colonies to react less. And they tried burlap. They tried pine needles. They tried um, like a bark or a like a cedar bark yeah. or mulch. I wouldn't use cedar um, bark. I am allergic to that crap. And they they did have some results, but I don't have that in front of me at the moment to to directly answer that. So I'm not going to give you a definitive answer, but yes, people out there have done some research and have tried to find certain things um, along those lines. So 
tell you what I found. It makes works real well. The pellets out of a pellet grill, barbecue grill. You know, the, the electric pellet feeder? You take a handful of those, throw it on top of your, your paper or whatever you're doing. It's a, it's a different smoke, and it works well. It keeps them lit for a while. Okay. That's true. What else? We use smoker pellets in yours, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. It worked out really well. Yeah, Once did. you get it going and you get mm-hmm. the hot bed in Gotta there and then put hot. the pellets over the mm-hmm. top, yeah. Okay. Next question is from Dino, or at least that's what the email address says. Yeah, Dino. Okay. Mr. Dino says, hello, I am a first-year beekeeper, so your podcast was perfect for me. Other than the regions that we're in, I am currently in Massachusetts in the New Hampshire, on the New Hampshire border. Okay, yeah, it's a, it's a tiny little bit different. Still it's, Yankee bees. It's beautiful up there in October, oh, it's though. Gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah, the, the trees are going to start changing. Oh, oh they're probably going to charge. No, 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 no. I was up there, so I went up to Boston and Boston? then Boston, Boston, okay. Boston. Had some Boston beans? I was up in Boston, and we went from Boston. This was in 2010, so it's mm-hmm. been a little while back. But we went from Boston to Salem to Ipswich up to Newberry's Port and then back down to Salem for Halloween. And it was gorgeous. See the witches? Yeah, we saw everything. It was awesome. Um, but it was beautiful. All of the trees oh, were all the different colors. Everything was changing. It snowed in Boston, these giant cotton ball-sized snowflakes for one day. <laughs> and then the next day, it was like 65 and 70. And it did that the rest of the whole week. It was gorgeous. We could not have asked for better weather. But that being said, you're absolutely correct. You're going to potentially be getting snow in October. We're going to finally be coming down out of the 90s. Yeah, we might get out of the hunters finally. <laughs> we'll, we'll be into the, like, like probably mid-80s, uh, mid-70s to mid-80s will probably be our October time. So you may not have a fall flow. Um, anyhow, we're way off subject. I have We've made it two sentences into your email, and we have, we're already going off topic. Okay, sorry. So um, back to Dino. Dino says, I have been told we had a perfect year this year. Rain came in at night and kept the bees busy during the day. We never really got uh, completely dry, so the dearth never seemed to happen. That said, I have just one hive, and it's three deeps tall. Damn. I started with two two hives, but one colony could not get it together, so in early August, my association said that it would be best for me to combine them. I wanted to bring the hive down to two deeps for winter, at the moment, the two bottoms are brood, pollen, and a honey mix. The top deep is all honey, all 10 frames of honey, but I can't use that honey because I had used apivar, tisk tisk. No, he's used the poison. <laughs> when the frames were all mixed. My concern is that the three deeps is too much space for the heat and be able to protect the bees during the winter. I do plan on wrapping my hives for the winter to insulate them, but how would you guys handle this? Okay, we're going to stop there because he goes into a second question, but we're, we'll stop there first. All right, so my first answer, which got shot out of the water right off the bat, mm-hmm. is what would we have done? I, would I have... was sitting there, <laughs> damn. He got he, he filled three deeps and one spring? I think what probably happened is because he said he combined Oh, yeah, hives. he combined us. Yeah, right. so he had resources, and what he did is he took all the frames that were going to be honey put them into one box, mm-hmm. all the frames that were any live stages and brood, and put mm-hmm. those in the other two boxes. Got the so, queen, uh, queen out of the first. Yeah, box. hopefully picked yeah. the second queen and, and offed the, mm-hmm. the, the one that was... The colony that got combined, that yeah. queen should have went away because she yeah. wasn't doing as well. And the yeah. colony that was doing well, that queen should have stayed. Yep. That's usually how you make that decision, which yep. queen was doing better. Um, so, you are correct. Um, now then, the trick of that is going to be 
you, you don't want to, if they're raising brood currently still, mm-hmm. you don't want to take that away from them because the more bees you have going into winter, mm-hmm. the stronger your winter cluster is going to be. So mm-hmm. yes, you do have a trick and a challenge here. Ultimately, for wintertime, what you want to get to is one deep box of bees and then your one deep box of honey. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it needs to be set up, and that's what I would do on that. Now, to do that, though, that's the trick. You're going to have to kind of wait until they've cut some of that brood down to where they've stopped laying brood, and mm-hmm. hopefully you can end up finding where you've got, say, one box. Um, well, you'll take both of those boxes and you'll go through, hopefully you have a, a third like spare box that you can use just to mm-hmm. set stuff in. But go through the boxes and, and do exactly kind of like you did when you did your com- your combination. Pull one out and say, okay, this one's still got life stages. I'm going to put this back into that box. And then this one is, there's no life stages in here. They're just storing food. Take that one out. Take all of those out and then try to reduce it down to where you just have one box that has all the life stages in it and all of the comb that are not being utilized to mm-hmm. raise brood get taken out. That's going to be kind of the main thing, I think. Getting there, though, is a challenge. Like, you can listen to us talk you through it and everything else, but your bees are going to have their own idea, and you're going to open that up, and whatever happens, happens. <laughs> They're going to so, come out and eat you. No, he's up north. Oh, he does, okay. He's not dealing with your bees. Oh. Um, Ken's jaded. He got stung three times in the yeah. face. <laughs> in the face. Mm. Well, top of the head. Side of the, the nose, cheek, the nose. <laughs> and on my hinge of the jawbone. Uh, so, go for it. I mean, yes, combine them down. You are absolutely correct. So the the thermal dynamics of that is going to be that the bees are going to start in the bottom box. They're going to backfill the second box full of honey Mm -hmm. eventually, hopefully, Mm -hmm. or sugar syrup if you're feeding them, which if they've got one full box of honey, you probably don't have to feed them. But So they're going to start backfilling that down in there. They're going to wind up in the bottom box, and then they're going to start vibrating and generating heat. That heat is going to rise all the way up through the second box and all the way up through the third box, which means it's going to be going far away from the bees. And yes, that can cause problems. Now, if you wrap the hive and you insulate the hive, that does keep them more regulated and keep them nice and toasty. But the heat is still going to rise, so it's mm-hmm. still going to go up that chamber. Um, I, I would say, if you can, absolutely try to get that down. And, and to do that, again, just real quickly, try to con- consolidate everything that is brood and life stages into one box and try to get out any comb that doesn't have anything going on or maybe food stores. Take that out of there. If you do have solid-capped frames of food in one of those boxes that you need to take out— Take it out, freeze it, and keep it in your freezer. That can be an emergency food store for you come January, February, March. If they're running out of food, you can then give that back to them and feed that back to them at that point in time, and then they'll actually still have some food stores. So that's kind of one of the ways that you can go through and do that. Another note, though, too, just out of curiosity, you said that the other colony was not doing that well. You could still overwinter a single deep if it had lots of bees in it, even though it's in one box. But it's it's all it goes back to like we were talking about on the top bar. It's a 50-50 ratio. You want to have at least five solid drawn comb uh, frames of drawn comb that is capped solid food. I just cannot talk this morning. Early, <laughs> I'm done. But you you could still potentially overwinter for those of you out there that you may just have one colony and it is a small single deep, and they just didn't quite make it that far this year. As long as they're still raising bees and you've got plenty of winter bees going into winter, it's the same concept as looking at the top bar. You just want to have a solid 
five frames, hopefully, of capped food, and then five frames of bees, and if they go over that, even better. But they can theoretically make it through the winter. The, a single deep, that 10-gallon volume, roughly, of a single deep, that is all the space any bee colony truly ever needs. We artificially stimulate them over that so they'll store more honey, so they'll make more bees to store more honey so that we can have a honey harvest. That's kind of how that works. So no worries there. All right, now your last question. Also, I'm interested in the Slovenian AZ hive. I wanted to put a hive in my shed so that the kids don't accidentally bump it. And this popped up in kind of seems like a great option. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, we have heard about the Slovenian AZ hive. Um, they actually reached out to us and we, we kind of sent them a counter offer with uh, they wanted to do some advertising and we did send them an offer and say, hey, you know, shoot us over the hive. We would love to go through and play with it and That's figure it out. That's the long hive. That is, uh, no, no, no. It's the Langstroth that opens from the back. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what the what the Slovenian AZ hive is, if you guys have ever seen the pictures online where it looks like a wagon or a shed and it's got just all the boxes, it's just faces of boxes, but they're in a building. Mm -hmm. And then when you go on the inside of the building, that's the opening of the hive and you can actually open the back of the hive instead of the top of the hive. And the frames are designed to where they slide out of the hive like a bookcase. So... I have some questions in regards to how that works because I've not ever had the pleasure and the joy of going through and actually working with them. And we did talk to somebody who actually goes through and, and builds those versions of hives and everything. And we asked them to send us one and we would go through and we would actually experiment with it and, and see how it worked out. Um, but we never heard anything no. back. <laughs> so at this point, we cannot directly speak to the pros and cons of that. But I mean, that is exactly what they use in a lot of places overseas and it seems to do well for them. So if you wanted to set one up and go through and experiment with it, I'd say go for it. Try it. I mean, that's, that's that's part of the fun of all this is experimenting and learning and seeing what works. So give it a shot. See how it goes. And uh, let us know. Send us pictures. Next email from Lacey <laughs> starts off question number 807. <laughs> I am definitely thinking that I need to feed over winter. So which would be better? Or is this more of a six to one half dozen the other? Overfeed sugar syrup now and let them store it for themselves or make a hard candy for them. Overfeed the sugar syrup. It is way better for them to have capped food stores that they have dehydrated down and put their enzymes and stuff with and mixed up and have it stored in the cells in the wax comb that's right there beside them than to have sugar candy that is a hard candy that is up above them that they have to be warm enough to be able to make it up to to get to and then they've got to lick it to try to get some of that out of there. I view the hard sugar candy as an absolute last resort for a colony going into winter that you have tried everything you possibly could and they just absolutely did not get enough food stores in there and that was all that you could do. So use the hard candy as a last resort. Try as you can right now to feed them as much as you possibly can. Um, that is the, that's the best thing on that. And Lacey's final question. Yes, go okay. ahead. No. I was just going to throw one part. Pollen. Feed them pollen right now. Right now, right yeah. There, you you need to be feeding right them pollen because so, the pollen is what's going to help them raise the winter bees, mm -hmm. and you really, really need that to get strong, healthy bees in there. So definitely do that as well, yes. Okay, final question from Lacey. I saw that someone had added a drop of food-grade color to their sugar water so that it would be easier to tell where the bees were storing sugar water versus real nectar or honey. Is this a really bad idea or just a bad idea? Well, it's a clever thought and it's a bad idea. And in some regards, it's a really bad idea. 
Um, so yes, yes to your, there you go. There your question is yes. Thank you, Lacey, for your questions today. We really appreciate That's that. That's an easy one. Um, you should not be putting food color in anything. Uh, most of so. the food colors and dyes, we ourselves should not even be consuming them whatsoever. Um, there are a lot of them that have been found to be carcinogenic. Yeah. That is true. If it is a natural dye coming from a natural substance like goldenrod, I recently found out, can be used to make a dye. Really? And so if you were using goldenrod to make a yellow dye and putting that in there, maybe. If you were using beets to make a red dye, maybe. But you're also adding other solubles and solids into your solution that the bees then over winter are going to potentially be consuming. It's not a good thing. I would not do it. You shouldn't be adding red dye to your bird feeders. Like none of that stuff is necessarily good. So no, yes, no. it's a novel concept to be able to say, hey, this over here is sugar and that over there is nectar and I don't want to take the sugar and that's great. Or you could be a good beekeeper and not feed them sugar when the nectar flow is going on and then you know there's no sugar in your honey. Or if you're feeding too much of colored sugar water, then then the spring or next fall comes along. And by the way, there was a couple of frames in there of the colored sugar water. You mix it with the honey, you just scrape up the color of your honey. Well, that was also the point. That's why they're putting that in there. So mm -hmm. when they pull out a frame and they look, well, this okay. frame's blue, so I can't extract it. Or this frame's red, so I can't extract it because it's sugar syrup. That's what. That's the point of that. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, kind of, I would say no, don't be putting dyes and stuff. Just know, know better about your area and your flows and know when the nectar flow is actually on. For us down here, we start, we know our nectar flow starts barely trickling in. We know what blooms when and what comes along with those blooms. And it starts trickling in and we kind of watch and we see how they're taking stuff in. We see how they're bringing stuff in. And it gets to a point where by April or mid-April, we quit feeding. And so that gives them the last half of April to burn through. And again, the other part of it is during the spring, we never feed enough or you should not be feeding enough for them to ever store it. That's when it comes to that one quart every three to four days, no more than two quarts a week, period. And that way they're not actually storing sugar syrup. They're using it to brood and up to brood up and get growing and raise their brood. So. Yeah, um, but it's all about how you manage it. If you're actually stopping soon enough, they can burn through the little bit that they have in there, and then everything else coming in for the rest of April and all of May and all of June is pure nectar, and then it's pure honey, and then you're good. And then in the winter, yes, you can feed enough to overwinter, but then you know coming out of winter, if there's some left over, it may be sugar syrup, so maybe don't extract that for yourself. There you go. Okay, done. Are you putting apple cider vinegar in your sugar water? <laughs> yes, I do. I know you do. I was asking her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> I'm thinking about building a long lane. Yeah? Just maybe not the flow hive. We'll do a long lane. All right. <laughs> John says, all right, shut the hell up. I'm just like, whatever, Ken. <laughs> you can add it to all those top bars you haven't built yet. <laughs> I don't have a, I got the, I got the top bar that I have of the nuke. You do have yes. a nuke, and you have one full-size top, top bar. Yeah, but you hadn't built the, put uh, the four together yet. I haven't. No, you, I haven't. you don't have the four nukes. Well, it doesn't matter. I've got nukes out at the farm, but I'm not bringing them to you in the fall. No. Right. So I don't need to build a <laughs> top bars in the fall. Okay. Got all the material. We teased this at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So now, let's go in. Our next question. Mm -hmm. The title of this email says, Listener Questions and 
Clearing up water swirling in different ways in a sink. <laughs> I think this one's for you, Ken. Yeah, I think so. Sounds All right. Like. So this email comes from Ryan, and Ryan lives in Australia. Ryan says, hi, Ken and John. Talking Aussie. I don't think I can. You don't think you can do Aussie? If I was over there, so I, I actually will pick up <laughs> accents. And so if I were there for a little while, uh -huh. I probably could do an episode where we talked and I could talk in not a horrible version of their accent. Okay. So, but to do it right now without mm -hmm. any reference, mm -hmm. I am no. Mm -mm. Sorry, okay. guys. I don't want to, uh, you know, humiliate myself and insult your, your culture and language. <laughs> so, all right. They don't have mites. Not yet. Thank God. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Ken and John. I live in Australia, close to the border of New South Wales in Victoria, and I'm getting my first real colony of bees in a few weeks. I say my first real colony because I had already caught a swarm in January at the end of our summer. So January, middle of our winter is the end of their summer. After being inspired by you guys and a few others to pay more attention to bees. Sadly, though, the swarm didn't make it through the winter because they were very small. Literally about a cup and a half of bees. That that's ain't all. many bees. That's, not, that's definitely not enough to do a whole lot mm -hmm. of anything. Um, and I'm a beginner beekeeper. I don't think that my management techniques help them very much, but lessons learned, and I have learned from them, such as don't stand directly in front of the hive. <laughs> so No, one of them will come at you and hit you right between the eyes. <laughs> so well, I was a long ways from the um, Yeah, so he, he's thinking that these lessons will help him as he gets started with his first real colony. So here are his questions that he has. Number one, have you had much experience with the expanded poly, polystyrene beehives, namely from Paradise Honey? And what are your thoughts on them? Now, Wood. <laughs> actually, Wood. there is a, a gentleman that is, he, he is from overseas, and he comes over here, mm -hmm. and I think he actually lives here now, but he comes here, and he's always at the state conferences and the conventions, mm -hmm. and he actually has those hives, and he sells those hives. And I have gone through, and I have looked at them, and I see a lot of beekeepers overseas that are actually using them, and I do think that they would work. If you're in an area that gets too hot or too cold, I would, I would question it, but only because I don't know what's in between the walls of that. If it is solid, if it's built more kind of like an ice chest would be, where you've actually got an insulation in there that would help keep the oh, hot out mean, and keep the hot in. Honeycomb between the walls? Not honeycomb between the walls. It would be honeycombed. <laughs> it could. Um, so the the thermal dynamics of it and how it's going to hold heat in, that would be kind of my question. Is it going to really help on the hot days to keep the hot out and keep the cool in? Um, but a lot of people seem to use them, and they seem to do really well. So I would say that it's not really that big of a concern or that big of an issue. My thing would be more towards the note of how natural do you want to be with stuff? Um, wood is a natural substance that the bees are going to encounter more often in nature, and plastic is not. And are there going to be any type of trace chemicals that may leach out when that plastic is hot that the wax and the honey and stuff could potentially absorb. So, you know, there's been big movements and stuff going forward these days about making sure that our drinking cups don't have specific chemicals in them because the plastic would leach it into there. So that would be my biggest concern, but that's also hypothetical because I, I've not used one. I've not read what they're created out of, you know, if they specifically make sure that they're free of all the things that are considered a contaminant, but that would be my main concern. I think they will work as a beehive just fine. 
just the legitimacy of could they potentially cause any harm to the bees. SDR 35 is what you use, and it's polystyrene. And now I'm going into my hardware. Go for it. I was a hardware salesman. Uh, so SDR 35 is what you, that's what the polystyrene is made into the sewer pipe. So do you really want your honey to taste like sewer pipe? <laughs> that's all I'll ask. Well, on that note... <laughs> So it's PVC. I would say wood. <laughs> Ken saying wood. wood. Okay. All right. The second question from Mr. Ryan. Do you have any tips on keeping bees in town? Why, yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> I don't want my bees to attack my pets or my neighbors or their pets. I'm taking steps to build a shade cloth and a barrier around my hives and, and the location they're going to be at. Is there anything else that I should do? All right. So. Put them in C feed them CBD oil. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I, I'm a lay down. I'm a really happy bee. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily know the temperament specifically of your feral bees that are down there. Um, hopefully, they're not nearly as bad as the you know like the Africanized genetics and things that we have here, or even the temperament of like a Russian bee. If you're below the temperament of a Russian bee and you're below the temperament definitely of the Africanized bees, then you're dealing with kind of some normal genetics and some normal temperament issues and whatnot. You need to make sure that you've got at the minimum a 10 foot distance between the bees and absolutely anything else that you want to do to be able to enjoy your yard or your neighbors <laughs> to enjoy theirs. So if you've got a fence around your yard and you're going to put your bees, say, back in one of the corners. Mm -hmm. At the minimum, make sure that that hive is at least 10 foot from each fence. 20 foot is better, but 10 foot is the minimum. That is the minimum safe distance that you can sometimes get by with if you're going to mow your yard or trim your yard and not make the bees mad. But that's not always the case. Sometimes still the weed eaters and things like that, any gas-powered machinery will set them off the vibrations, it throws debris, and then it spews carbon dioxide. They don't like it. They will follow it. They will find you. So if you can do 15 foot, that's even better. If you can do 20 foot, that's perfect. But you want that to be the minimum safe distance from the edge of your barrier to the hive. The if, next... What? If you don't like your neighbor, put it real close. No. No. <laughs> Don't do that because then your neighbors can make well, you have yeah, to get rid of your can. bees and people yeah, get hurt. And yeah, so you better not do that. Ken's being ornery over here. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, that that would be the number one tip right there. The next thing is going to be responsibility when it comes to managing your hives and what you're doing with your hives. So if you know that it is a weekend and your neighbor's kids are going to be outside playing, don't check your hive in the middle of the day. Wait until evening when it's going to be dark soon and check your hive then. That way if they get riled up, the bees are going to go home quicker, and it's not going to be like, well, I pissed my bees off at 10 o'clock this morning, and now it's noon, and they're still mad, and the kids are outside screaming and yelling, and all of a sudden, everybody started getting stung. So you want to just be respectful, be conscious of your neighbors. Also, if you're friends with your neighbors, then let them know what's going on and tell them, hey, uh, I, you know, like I, the bees are in a bad mood today. If you guys could stay out of the yard for an hour or two, that would be better. You know, bribe them with honey. Um, there's lots of different things that you can do. But if you're trying to keep it secret, then the best thing to do is be respectful of their time and their space. Don't manage them during times when, you know, it's the peak hours of people wanting to be out enjoying the yards. Do it later in the evening. And, and that's usually kind of a better scenario on that. All right. Last question from Ryan. 
I know that neonicotinoids are harmful to bees, but what about more consumer-level herbicides like glyphosate, uh, MCPA, and dicamba? People use these on their lawns quite often in town, so if my bees are in town, should I be concerned with these chemicals harming my colony or its honey or its wax? Well, glyphosate is the devil. Um, for those of you who don't know it by its other name, its more common name is Roundup. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. Roundup is currently being <laughs> leached to cancer <laughs> in humans. <laughs> yeah. So here is your thing. When it comes to anything like that, yes, all chemicals are bad. Mm -hmm. If it is not intended for you to be able to ingest it or have it on your skin or breathe it in mm -hmm. without causing harm, you do not want it around mm -hmm. your bees because guess what? Your bees make honey and you eat it. And bees yeah. are living creatures. So if it's going to hurt them, it's going to hurt us. If it's going to hurt us, it's going to hurt them. Uh, the only thing really that you can do on that is to kind of go back also and, again, if you're friends with your neighbors directly around there, encourage them that if they absolutely have to use any type of chemical like that, don't ever spray it directly on flowers and preferably spray later in the evening when it's going to have all night to set instead of first thing in the morning when it's going to be wet when the bees are out there going and pollinating and, and foraging and whatnot. Um, it's all kind of about when things get done is whether or not the bees are going to come into contact with it. If you spray late in the evening, you don't spray it directly on flowers. You just spray grasses or weeds and things like that, and they die out. It has all night for the chemicals to dry, and then when they're dry, a lot of them aren't going to be a problem to the bees after the fact. But it's all about how people use things. And yes, absolutely, those things can be absorbed into the wax and they can express themselves into the honey. So, But that is that is something that anybody in any town has to deal with. That is not specific to any local area. You've got park services and city services that use all kinds of chemicals that we wish they wouldn't use. You've got neighbors that would rather their lawn be pristine and not have a single speck of color other than green in it. So, you know, I mean, it's a challenge anywhere you go. You just kind of cross your fingers and hope that everything goes well. But more importantly, and to lead on to the last bit of this here, Ryan says, quote, unquote, I would also like to speak directly to Ken for a moment. Another I like, one? I would like to clear up a few things. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Ryan says, I am a science teacher by trade, and I know that you think that the water swirls the other way down the sink in the southern hemisphere, but I'm sorry, it does not. And the blood rushes to their head. <laughs> While the carnial, or carnialis, I'm going to call them bees. While the Coriolis effect, I probably butchered that, I'm sorry. The Cor Coriolis. There we go. While the Coriolis effect does in fact cause cyclone and hurricanes to spin in a certain direction in each hemisphere, or even cause a sniper to need to take the spin of the earth into account when he's taking a long shot, it does not actually have enough of an effect on a sink. The direction of the spin is caused more by the shape of your sink and the current motion that the water was in when you pulled the plug rather than anything else. I'm really sorry to burst your bubble. <laughs> Damn it! But I would like to leave you with another thought okay. to mull over. So okay. he's going to give you something else to obsess on. Yeah. Blood rushes to your head. Oh, man. Here we he's go. He's upside down down there. <laughs> hey, you know, that was perfect. <laughs> on the subject of the Earth's hemispheres, you and most of the world mm -hmm. would say that you live in the northern hemisphere. Yeah. While I live in the southern hemisphere. Right. But I ask you, what happens when a north pole of a magnet is put near the pole of another magnet? They repel each other. So, 
Why does the red tip of a compass that is supposed to be pointing north towards the North Pole mm -hmm. of a magnet point north towards the Arctic? The answer is actually because the North's, <laughs> so the Norse, the Earth's North Pole is actually a south magnetic field. And the south magnetic pole in Antarctica has a north magnetic field charge. That way, the north pole of the compass... Whoops, my phone went off. Uh, okay. <laughs> the answer is because the Earth's north magnetic pole is a south magnetic field. And the south magnetic pole is actually a northern magnetic field. The north pole of the compass cannot actually point towards the north because it's repelled by the north. So it actually points towards the southern magnetic field. So now, knowing all of that, I ask you, which of us actually lives in the northern hemisphere and who is actually upside down? <laughs> hey, Ryan, send me a video of the southern cross. Yeah, the southern cross that we can't see in the north. I'll send you a video of the North Star. Yeah, but what he's saying is actually true. Well, I know, who, but I'm just I'm knows, just trying to confuse him. Who knows what's north and what's south, what's up and what's down? Maybe it's actually all backwards, and that's the Northern Cross and the Southern Star. Well, you know. Ooh, and even better, what happens when the Earth's magnetic poles flip? They change. And no, they, they do they a complete reversal, no, and then everybody's on their heads. Uh, they've said that the North Pole was <laughs> in North America at one time. Well, the, yeah, the magnetic the north. The way it moves around. The magnetic yeah. north goes all over the place. And sometimes they will completely flip-flop. But hey, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, Ryan closes out and says, I look forward to every single episode that you guys put out. Thanks for all of the tips, tricks, and laughs along the way, Ryan. Well, thank you, Ryan, for listening. We greatly appreciate Send everybody Send me a picture listening. of a kangaroo. Uh, yeah, a cute one. A cute one. I want to see a little Joey. Little Joey? <laughs> um, anyhow, thank you guys all. Thank you for sending in your listener questions. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, it's always a blast. We have so much fun with this, and we, we love the fact that you guys love listening. We love that you get entertainment and enjoyment out of it and that it helps you along with your day, helps pass those long car rides when you're going places, all that fun stuff. Um, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Paula, thank you and bless you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was that was an amazing yep. response and an really email. Was. So we thank you for that as well. So thank you guys. Uh, until your next episode out there, you be good. Be safe. Behave. Bye-bye. Yep. Y'all be good. We'll holler at you. You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.